Good morning, church. Now, when I was uh, about 18 to uh, 19 years old, uh, I worked for my aunt uh, one day every week. And uh, my Saturday job uh, was to collect bill, bill payments from her customers. You see, my aunt at that time, he, she owned a factory that manufactures uh, construction materials. Now, I found out that uh, bill collection was not an attractive job. Nobody respects the bill collector. So each time I would arrive at an address, because I was a, given a list for the day, I was made to stand outside the gate. I was asked to stand outside the window, which became a makeshift counter booth. And none of my aunt's debtors uh, were ever invited me in. There was no, please come in and have a drink. No, nothing similar to that. No one offered me, would you like, you know, would you like to come and come in and have a seat? And whenever I happened to arrive just before lunch break, I had to wait after lunch break was over. And uh, sometimes after the long wait was over, when my turn came to be attended, because there are other bill collectors on the Saturday, after the long wait was over, when my turn came, my debtors would, uh, the, uh, my aunt's debtors would tell me, oh, the check has not yet been signed. Or, oh, the invoice has yet to be double-checked. So come back next week. So nobody had regard for the bill collector. And so at the end of the workday, I would report back to my aunt with either little collection or zero collection. And I would tell my aunt of my experience. And so Auntie Feli would tell me, I see. But why is it that when I send my son, customer so-and-so would invite the son in? Uh, they would offer the son a drink. They would pass the son the payment check. And there'd be no need for the son to return the following week. And when I heard that from my aunt, I was like, duh, of course, in my head. Why, of course, I am the nephew. I am not the son. Sending the son is different from sending the nephew, from sending somebody else. Because sending the son is almost like sending your very own self. So our passage today, as we look at the last point of Two Ways to Live presentation, our passage today, John chapter 3, verse 16 and following, are familiar verses to all of us, if not most of us. These famous verses speak of God sending His Son. And so now if we recall the first point of the TWTL message, Two Ways to Live, point one speaks of God being the good ruler and creator. God created everything. He is the source and maker of all that exists. And that includes the good and beautiful world that we all live in. This is his, his world. He made it and he is in charge of it. And he also made us to enjoy his uh, beautiful world and gave us a very unique role the unique role to rule over the world as we honor and as we obey God as our ruler. So John chapter 3, verse 16 and following tells us that this good ruler and creator sends his son. 
Now that is like sending God, sending his very own self. Because after all, the Father and the Son are in fact one. And so God sends his Son. And the question is, how will men and women receive the Son of the ruler, the Son of the creator? Will they, like, you know, what my aunt's uh, customers did, will they welcome the Son? Will they invite him in? Will they offer him a drink? Will they give him the honor that is due the Son? Well, sadly, no. In fact, the Lord used a story, a parable, to describe humankind's treatment of God. And Jesus says, well, a man planted a vineyard. He rented it to farmers. And come harvest time, uh, he sent a servant to collect some of the fruit. And you know what happened to this servant? The servant returned not just with zero collection. The servant returned bruised and beaten. Same thing happened to servant number two, to servant number three. They all came back beaten blue and black. And the owner of the vineyard then said to himself, well, I will send my son whom I love, perhaps they will respect him. But did they? Did they? Well, the farmers, the tenants, we were told, killed the son. You read all about it in Luke chapter 20. And the actions of the tenants, the actions of the farmers, portrayed the response of God's people, the Jews, towards God's son. And then on a macro scale, it describes humankind's response to God, which is stated in point number two, that we rebelled against God. Which means that we do not thank Him as we should for being our generous creator and provider. We do not honor Him. We do not obey Him as our ruler. Instead, we wanted to be left alone to live our own way in defiance to, of Him. And that is our attitude by default towards God. But then, why does God still send His Son? Why does He stand, still send His Son? And the answer is found in the word love. Love. For God so loved the world that He gave His only Son, that whoever believes in Him should not perish, but have eternal life. For God did not send His Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through Him. And so God sent His Son in order to save us from perishing, in order to save us from death. And so we've already learned during the past, for the past Sundays, that because of sin, we all experience God's judgment against our rebellion. And this is seen in the reality of death. We all perish because there is corruption, there is decay, there is death in our world as part of God's punishment for our rejecting of Him. And we experience God's judgment because of our rebellion. Now we also learned, and this is very important, that God's judgment is an act of His holy love. 
It's an act of his holy love. God's holy love leads him to punish evil in order to protect his creatures and to protect his creation. Otherwise, his love, if you remember, his love otherwise would have been some kind of an undefined fuzzy love where judgment is absent. So you may have heard of this kind of fuzzy love before. Somebody tells you, if you love me, you will not judge me. Have you ever heard that being told to you? If you love me, you will not judge me. See, when people tell you that, they understand love to mean that you got to accept me for who I am. You got to accept what I do without judging. That, my friends, is fuzzy, undefined love, where judgment does not exist. But holy love, holy love is not fuzzy love. Holy love, judgment is present. And that, my friends, is God's love. It's a love that judges. But then God's love also is a love that saves. Because God loves us, He wants to save us from death, from perishing. God wants to save us from the final rightful judgment for our rebellion. The final judgment where one is cut totally from God. Final judgment where one is cut totally from all the good things that God has been providing us despite our rebellion. God wants to save us from perishing and reaping that unending destruction. And God saves us from perishing by sending His Son. And so how does God's Son save us? Next point. God's Son saved us by His death. He saves us by His death. You know, the very purpose of Jesus' coming was not so that we may have a Christmas holiday uh, that's filled with uh, vacation, shopping, gifts, parties. Jesus' purpose in coming was to give His life for us. You see, God must judge us for our sin. But because God, the just judge, loves us, He sent His Son to take the punishment on our behalf. And so Jesus is the one without sin, but He became sin for us. And He willingly gave His life. And so by His, by his death, the Son atones for our sin. Now you have that word, atone. Atone is a very important word. We do not hear that very often, although occasionally, sometimes I hear that in marriages. For example, the wife says, oh, the husband, my husband needs to atone for his mistakes, right? That's the only time I heard the word atone. Now, when the son atones for our sins by his death, it shows that his death pays for our sins. His death makes up. His death amends for our sins. And so we learn then that firstly, and this is important, that number one, Jesus' death is not a death solely 
for exhibiting or showcasing God's love. Now, Jesus did not die just to show you how much He loves you. His death is not just a mere demonstration of God's love because that would have been a meaningless and silly death, wouldn't it? And so I remember one theologian who explains why this is so. He says, well, suppose you arrive to see that your house is on fire because you are using modified PMD. But thankfully, everyone has already been rescued from the fire. They're safe, they're sound, safe and sound outside the burning house. But because you wanted to show your love to your family members, to your spouse, to your children, you wanted to show love, and so you run into the burning house to demonstrate that you are willing to give your life to save any member who may be trapped in the fire. And you know what happens? You fail to come out, of course. And though your death may be without a doubt an act of love, it nevertheless is a meaningless and silly death. Don't you agree? Jesus' death is not a meaningless and silly death. It's not just for show. But His death was the only way to pay for our sins. Atone is the word. His death makes up and amends for our sins. But that's not what atonement only does. His atoning death on our behalf is the perfect sacrifice that satisfies God's righteous anger. His sacrificial death now makes God favorably disposed towards us. And so the debt of our sins was not just paid in full. Jesus' death also reconciles debtors with, or rather reconciles the debtor with the debtee the debtor with the creditor. So have you ever been forgiven your debt? Have you ever experienced that? Debt has been forgiven. When I was growing up, my dad's business failed and uh, he was not able to pay rent for many months. And he asked the landlord for more time to pay the rent that uh, we owed. But the landlord he canceled our debts instead. And I say, what a relief. What's such good news? We thought it was. It was good news until the landlord ordered us to move out. Until he says, move out in the next few weeks. He does not want us as his tenants from henceforth. Now, I was a young kid. I saw what happened. And I remember that it hurt. But the landlord was not being unreasonable. Fair enough. Because you see, when a debtee forgives a debtor, it is expected that he will never lend him money again. Right? Even if you go talk to your friends, talk to my friends, talk to him. It's not going to happen. There's never, ever going back together again. 
So the debt was cancelled? Yes. But no further dealings from now on. But the atoning death of Jesus, however, does more than just settle a huge debt of sins. His atonement reconciles us to God. His atonement brings us together. His atonement makes you and I become part of God's family. And so we read this a while back. Why was it necessary for Christ, the Redeemer, to die? Well, since death is the punishment for sin, Christ died willingly in our place to deliver us from the power and penalty of sin and bring us back to God. And so by His substitutionary atoning death, He alone redeems us from hell and gains for us forgiveness of sin, righteousness, and everlasting life. And so the death of Christ was necessary for it was the only way our sins can be paid to a loving and just God. And as a result, we are saved from condemnation because there is now a way that leads to everlasting life, also known as eternal life. So what is eternal life? Now, to understand eternal life, we must recall the good creation that God, the good ruler and creator, made. He made man and woman to rule over his creation, and man and woman were supposed to uh, live forever in obedience, independence upon God. But when they sinned and rebelled against God, they were banished from the presence of God, from banished from the presence of the holy God. And also, death now came into the world as a result of sin. And the rest of humankind followed suit. All disobeyed and all rebelled against God and reaped death. But now in Christ, the loving and just God reverses death by offering eternal life in Jesus. And so eternal life is the antithesis of death, which was brought about by sin. Eternal life is the opposite, is the reversal of death. But not just physical death. Jesus prays to the Father and he says, Light, now this is eternal life that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. So eternal life is God having a relationship, us having a relationship with Him. Eternal life is having a relationship where there is obedience and fellowship with God. A relationship that was lost when the first man and woman sinned against God. And eternal life then is experienced in the now, at present, yet its fulfillment is in the future. That is why Jesus says, slide, He says, For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in Him should have eternal life. Then He doesn't end there. He says, and I will raise him up on the last day. 
So eternal life is now in fellowship with God, but eternal life is also in the future when Jesus returns and gives each of us who believe in him a new resurrected body replacing this aging, sickly, imperfect body. Now, as Pastor Joe prayed for us a while ago, we have a number of deaths and funerals this past week. Death is a sad and unavoidable event that all of us will experience in this uh, fallen world. Yet, it can be an event that is filled with hope. Why? Because Jesus promises eternal life now and fulfilled in the future. And so how can one attain eternal life? Well, John chapter 3, verse 36 tells us that whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. So belief in the Son is what we call faith. Faith. Now again, we read a while ago, what is faith in Jesus? Well, faith in Jesus is acknowledging the truth of everything that God has revealed in His Word, trusting in Him, and also receiving and resting on Jesus alone for salvation, as He is offered to us, as we see in the Gospel. And so belief or faith in Jesus is, is accepting the truth that God has revealed in His Word concerning our sin, concerning our need for forgiveness, and, uh, and the truth that forgiveness can only be attained by trusting in Jesus and Jesus alone, who will save you and I from sin and death because he offers us eternal life. And so the two ways to live presentation ends by stating that there are two ways to live. Uh, you can look at it or you can think of them as, as two roads. One is the road that we all take uh, from the very start, at the very onset. It is the road where I am the driver of my life. You know, some of you drive, I drive, and I love to drive. I do not want to be driven because I get giddy. And as a driver, you experience that you want to be in control. It is the road where I am the driver of my life, and the road... Where I drive, I do not listen to God's instructions because I want to run my own life. That road leads to destruction. But along that road, you and I are offered a detour. Now, this detour requires surrender to God's instructions, His truth about our sin, the judgment that we deserve, and the Savior, who alone can save us from sin and death by offering us eternal life. And so faith, belief in Jesus, is taking that detour. Which road best describes the one that you are taking now? And so in ending, if this is your first time hearing about this detour, and by God's grace and His goodness, you understood your need of a Savior found in Jesus, you can pray in your heart 
Ask Jesus to forgive your sins and tell Jesus to lead you and take that detour. The road that commences eternal life for you now and is fulfilled in the finality. You can say this prayer in your heart. You can say, Dear God, I know that I am not worthy to be accepted by you. I do not deserve your gift of eternal life. I am guilty of rebelling against you and ignoring you. And I am sorry. I need your forgiveness. Thank you for sending your son to die for me so that I may be forgiven. Thank you that he rose from the grave to give me new life. Please forgive me and change me so that I may live with Jesus as my ruler. Amen. Now, if you have prayed that prayer in your heart, you are now part of God's family. And do not keep it a secret, but please come and tell us, or tell the friend who brought you here, because we want to celebrate and rejoice with you, and we want to tell you more about what's in store with this new life in Jesus. Now, if you have believed in Jesus already, which many of us have already done so, that means that you have heard the truths that I shared with you this morning. Now, I do not know how you feel listening to all truths being preached again and again. And we're listening to this like for the sixth time today, for the past six weeks. So I do not know how you feel. Well, you know what I do? Aside from looking for opportunities to tell others the gospel, I ask the Lord to, concerning his old truth, I ask the Lord to give me a reawakening. I ask the Lord to give me a rekindling. I want to rejoice in the salvation that Jesus gave me. And so I want to be reawakened every time I hear the gospel. And you know, here's how God responded to my asking. Through old songs that I hear from the radio. Old songs that I hear from Spotify. Now, how many of you love to listen to old songs? Now, not the kind that sometimes our musicians make us sing, you know? hymns that belong to the 1800s. No, I'm not referring to that. But all songs that you grew up with. Do you like listening to them? For me, it's both a yes and a no. Yes, because I remember every single word by heart. But no, sometimes. Barry Manilow says, old songs bring back the old times. And an old song that I chance upon may make me recall the old foolish life that I've lived before. And an old song reminds me of the misdeeds that I did, the hurtful words that I said in anger. Now, of course, I could simply just quickly brush them aside and say, oh, well, those were youthful mistakes. I don't think they are youthful mistakes. They're not mistakes. 
but they were sins committed against God and against fellow. Past sins that I could never atone for. But thanks be to God for the righteousness of Christ given to you and I who believe in Him. God will never bring up our sins that we are now ashamed of. And so though some old songs may do the work of reminding us, sometimes haunting us even, I turn them instead into a reawakening, a rekindling, because the work of Christ on the cross assures you and I that our debts of sins are settled and that God looks at us as righteous because of our faith in Jesus. And so in closing, next slide. We read, does Christ's death mean all our sins can be forgiven? And the answer, which is good news, yes. Because Christ's death on the cross fully paid the penalty for our sin. And God graciously imputes, transfers, gives to us Christ's righteousness to us as if it were our own. And God will remember our sins no more. And so today being a Sunday, if you turn on the radio, you will hear old songs. And I'm sure it's going to remind you of your past. Well, you can always sing the old tunes because if Jesus is your righteousness, you and I are righteous before God and He will remember our sins no more. Praise be to God. Let us pray. Lord, were you to lay our sins before you, we stand condemned, for we are unable to pay for our enormous debt. And so we praise you because of the gift of your Son, Jesus, the one you sent out of your love for us, your love that judges, but your love that also saves. Thank you for the gift of eternal life revealed in your Son and in your Word. And so may we proclaim such great news to others that they may know that Jesus is the Savior, that He is the Son of God, and that by believing in Him, one may have life in His name. Amen.